When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here in this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week is Jeff McDonald. Jeff was a former college player at UVA, former player on the tour who had some very nice wins. But for the last 25 years, he's been the women's coach at Vanderbilt. We've had a number of people request uh, a college tennis podcast, and we have obliged this week. Great conversation with uh, with Coach McDonald. We talk a bit about just what it's like to coach a college program, what is the state of college tennis, some thoughts he has on the number of overseas players who are on college tennis rosters. Uh, talk a bit about Varsity Blues. Great conversation. Um, really enjoyed this one. I hope you do as well. Here from Nashville, Tennessee, Vanderbilt University, women's tennis coach. Here's Jeff McDonald. I thought we would get started. I, I want to talk a bit about college tennis, and we have had a number of uh, a number of listeners say we, we, should, we ought to do a college tennis podcast, and I thought uh, you, you would be a great guest. For, for those purposes. Well, well, thank you. Appreciate you, you asking me. And uh, yeah, I've been in the game a long time and played it myself. So care pretty deeply about college tennis. How, uh, we'll sort of start, start basic and then we can get specific. Um, it always strikes me this co- coaching a college tennis team is one of the great gigs in tennis. We d- yeah. disabuse me, uh, c- confirm or deny. Am I, am I right? I confirm. Um, I was out this summer with uh, one of my former players was main draw. Golden Girls to Wimbledon, and I went with her to so from Paris to London, which is a pretty good gig in between the grass court circuit in England, and it was fantastic. But comparing it to college tennis, college tennis came out on top. Is that right? What? Why is that? Um, so what you're winning and losing as a team. Uh, you know, sometimes you uh, one or two players can lose, and you can still win as a group. Um, it's not quite. The, well, the travel just isn't quite as, as relentless. And, um, you know, just your downtime on the tour is so significant. You get the gun done with a college tennis match, you, you, you go on with your day. It goes, goes pretty well. You, you played at UVA. Yes. And you, you, you played on the tour. Yes. But you, you've been at Vanderbilt. Uh, this, this, is, this is quite a tenure. How, how did you get into this and... Just sort of talk talk about the job. I mean, what what's the what's the day to day? What's the division between actual coaching and recruiting? What's what's your job like? Um, so I got into college coaching in 1988 at LSU. They um, they couldn't find a coach. I had just moved there with my wife to. She was taking a job as an English professor, and I was going to finish up a graduate degree. And they, I met the associate AD. He hired me. Um, I just loved it, and and I moved from there to Duke, and then Duke to coming here was a fantastic move. Just um, Vanderbilt's in the Southeastern Conference, and yeah, it's similar academically to Duke, Stanford, Notre Dame, etc. Uh, what's the job like? I, I, what's interesting is it's it can be kind of creative. You can think, how do I want to do my program? What do I want to do? What's important to me? How how can I do my job well? 
So some people focus solely on recruiting and then kind of manage very good players. Right. Um, that's a model that probably wins more national championships than any other model. I prefer the development, like finding kind of a diamond in the rough, somebody who maybe isn't ranked in the top 20, but they're still really good, they're athletic, and they want to get better. And then my job is much more being on the court and learning how to teach and coach tennis at this level. What's, I imagine this varies school by school, but what's your pressure to win? I mean, if, if you take a kid who is not a top 20 player, not fully developed, um, and you don't compete for NCAA titles, what sort of pressure does that put on you? Again, it's going to depend on the school. Some right. places, and it's, it's gotten to where there's higher pressure with uh, kind of a Sears Director's Cup phenomenon where if, if your tennis team goes to the finals or wins it, you get the same number of points as if your football team wins the BCS. The same number of points for an athletic director. So, and also the funding and the support of tennis has gone up just steadily since I've, I've been in the business. Right. Um, so with resources invested comes higher expectations and greater pressure. That said, if you're doing a good job in terms of you're recruiting quality people, you're good students, um, you know, they're, they're representing the school well, and you're competitive, uh, you're, you're, you're not, your head isn't on the chopping block. How many scholarships do you have to, uh, to give to your players? We have the NCAA maximum of eight. Right. And you, you can give scholarships to eight people, up to full scholarships, depending on your school's funding. But we're lucky. Uh, being in the Southeastern Conference, the funding for <clears throat> for women's sports has just traditionally been probably the best in the country. Right. Uh, you hope hope Vanderbilt keeps its football team. Um, yeah, I think we will. But but how do you um and and you can keep those you can take those scholarships and chop those up. Is that still the case? But only to eight people. Okay, gotcha. Right. So you couldn't have sixteen people on a half right. scholarship. You right. just, you, um, if you get a dollar, it's the same as getting a full. What sort of the state of the union on, on college tennis right now is as you see it? I mean, it, it sounds as though you're you're in a fortunate position where it's it's a strong school. You don't have an athletic director telling you I need to see some NCAA titles, but um, sort of where, where you sit. What what is the state of the union on college tennis in general? Say that again. What, what's the state of college tennis? Yeah, I mean, how how do you sort of size up the industry right now? I mean, what's what do you think uh, of college tennis where it is right now? Uh, you know, I, I was on the College Tennis Intercollegiate Tennis Association board for three years. So you you look at trends and you look at, um, you know, I, I think college tennis deserves more support from the USTA. I think we're kind of a vital, you know, you play junior tennis, hopefully to get to play college tennis, and then some people go on to play the pros. And college tennis kind of sits in the middle and might not, might not get enough support. You could get a little bit of financial support. Um, there's an ongoing, how much pro tennis do you need to play while you're a collegian? Right, right. That's kind of an arms race where colleges are trying to put on pro events often on campus, 25s and 50s and things like that. Right. They use it as a recruiting tool, et cetera. You get into a lot of slippery slopes there with um, – you just the ethics of it. An example is giving wild cards to a 50K on your campus to a recruit. Right. 
Right. That's a pretty good advantage there. Um, then the other model is if you look at some of the people who've done really well in college in pro tennis, John Isner was not playing pro events. Uh, Steve Johnson wasn't. Daniel Collins wasn't. They might have played one or two, but they weren't. You know, so that's a trend I think is alarming. Some schools are saying, come to, come to our school, you can go online, and you can play pro all fall, and we'll pay for it. So that's a kind of difficult thing to recruit against. Um, that said, I think there are more really good coaches trying to be good than ever before. And, you know, the problem we face is there's a bit of a labor shortage. So there aren't enough elite players to stop the college programs so people go overseas. Nothing wrong in balance, but when it kind of tips over to where, you know, it, if there's you no know, U.S. citizens playing, that, 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 that seems to hurt our game in terms of local support and, and a feeling of, hey, our is good enough for you, that kind of thing. So there are all kinds of forces at work. In, in really in any college sport, but certainly in college tennis. Well, let, let's talk about that because I um I've I've written about that. I'll, I'll give you my yep. backstory about when I first started covering tennis for Sports Illustrated. Someone said you should go do a story on on Lander University, a small school in South, yep, Carolina. South Carolina. And I'm thinking, oh, this could be a school. This is this absolutely dominant Division three school, and they they win the title every year, and it's this powerhouse for uh, players from South Carolina. And then I go and I looked at their roster and. I don't think there was a single American on it. Just but before we before we spoke, I, I looked at their roster now. Brazil, Denmark, Australia, France, Australia. There is one player right. from Charleston. New Zealand, Australia, Australia, Brazil, Sweden. I mean, tw- twelve of the thirteen kids are not from the United States. This is right. this is Lander College in South Carolina. This isn't uh, you know a, a Division One powerhouse. What what is the state of affairs? And I mean, you you mentioned that you know kids play junior tennis in order to play college tennis. If twelve of thirteen spots at Lander College, to say nothing of you know, Baylor and, and some of the uh, some of the powerhouses. If, if twelve of thirteen roster spots are going to players who are not from the U.S., what impact does that have, and wh- where do you see this issue? So let's let's go to let's look at say the mid major level. Okay, so you're a young tennis coach and you take a job at at a mid major. Okay, and you're you're in Ohio. Ohio State's going to get these recruits. Um, you know, the D1 schools around you are going to, who are you going to get? So you, there, there are players, you can find players. But here's the problem. That young coach wants to get the next job. So he or she will say, I got to get, I got to bring in some ball players, knock off some, some power five teams, get into the tournament, make a name for myself, so then I can get to a, to the next place. Right. So, you, you know, the problem is there aren't, there are plenty of American players. They're just they're maybe not as they're not as deep in terms of you know think of how one of their 330 Division One teams. Uh, do we go you know five six hundred deep every year in American tennis? Probably not to a level where you know the levels would would be pretty low. I think at that point. Um, in balance, I've had some international kids here at Vanderbilt who were remarkable, and they brought. A very good. It was actually part of the education for our team. You know, someone from the UK, and we'd say, "Well, tell us about your healthcare system. Right. Tell us what do you guys do with gun control?" And you know, it was interesting to have a back and forth on the differences of the countries. But I, I agree with you. It's it's spiraled into we're both going to be sensitized to it, and 
it seems, you know, it's, you got to back up and an athletic director has to say, hey, here's what, we're, here's what I want you to do. I don't care if you win at this level, but let's get a bunch of kids from the home state or let's, let's do this. Um, and that would, again, now the AD may be getting a bonus if the, if the all the teams do well. You know, so right, right. it's uh, got to kind of figure out where where the motivation comes or why people are, are, are driving it that way. What's the solution where you, you, you know, we, we don't like the word quota. And it, I mean, it's funny. I mean, at some level too, any sort of a cap on foreign players seems to me, uh, this is an inversion of, uh, you know, the globalization right. and open markets and this connected right. world we live in at the same time. It, it does seem to me problematic when the majority of roster spots, certainly the majority of scholarships are going to non-Americans. What's, what's your solution? You know, I thought about this a lot. I was involved in a heavily involved about, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago in a problem where international players could come in older with pro experience and walk right onto a team. An American kid who made 50 bucks in a you know club tournament would be banned from playing. Right, we got yeah. that fixed in a good way. Um, I agree with you. You can't you know, turn into Lou Dobbs on, on international scholarships. I think there's one kind of novel solution. If you take five French kids and give them scholarships, that aid is matched back to maybe an American. Not necessarily an athlete, but almost like a Fulbright, where, you know, the French government says, oh, well, we will reciprocate. You guys gave us 100 grand in scholarship this year. We'll, we'll invite, you know, uh, it's just, a, just a, an idea. Um, but really, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. If the USTA would invest more in college tennis, and for a while there, I think they saw college tennis, especially for really good players, oh, don't go to college. No, that's, you got to go to the tour right away. Right. Um, so there's almost an adversarial relationship there. It's tennis. I think they now see the value of it and, and all that. But I think it would be great to try to not go anti-international quotas, because you're right, that's not America, but I think we could have more junior development on campus campuses. Um, that could be a, a part of it where the USDA you know has a grant to the assistant coach and says, I want you to run, you know, a three day a week junior development clinic and also host junior tournaments and begin to develop the junior game. Um, and then there's the labor shortage gets smaller. Those are some of my ideas. When, that's what you mean when you say the USTA. I mean, the USTA obviously can't supplement coaching salaries. We're not paying players. That's that's what you're talking about when you're talking about USTA support? Uh, partially, really, I mean, just look at college tenants and say, how can we help? Right. Can we support you financially? Yeah. Can we give wild cards to collegians more? Sure. But what I mean is, you know, honestly, I think, as you were saying earlier, college tennis is probably – the best coaching job out there. Um, and you get some really good coaches. And then you say, look, you're in, you know, University of Kentucky. Let's, let's get a junior development program going in Lexington. You know, you're doing match play and you're teaching, you're teaching younger kids how to play. And if it's, there's financial incentive where the USDA says, look, we'll give you, we'll, we'll pay for this. Well, you know, it won't be. Uh, I don't think there'd be an ethical problem with that. It would just be, 
again, as the athletic director, just saying, yeah, let's try to grow the game in the town. And uh, we've got, you know, this this great tennis program here. We have these incredible schools coming in. You know, here in Nashville, when we get juniors over to watch, they're, and their parents, they're just incredulous at the level. You know, that it's basically pro tennis. Right, right, right. How does the, uh, the these expanded careers we're witnessing in pro tennis now, where you yeah. know, the 35 is age eligibility for the senior tour, and, and there are plenty of 35-year-olds who aren't even thinking about retiring. Right. How, how is that, where careers aren't as compressed as they used to be, how is that affecting college tennis? Well, I often say, if I'm speaking to somebody who's very elite, and they're wondering about pro tennis, and... You know, again, they're often asking, hey, will you take me to these pro tournaments? There's even, this is a problem I failed to mention earlier, there's kind of a one-and-done inducement being offered to. Come to our school for a year, sometimes even a semester, spring semester, play, then you can turn pro and come back, Um, which is pretty amazing. If you think of a school like Vanderbilt, it would be, you're looking at a quarter-million-dollar investment for one season. Um, pretty hard to sustain that, but it's happening. Right. But what I say a lot is, look, you, you look at the age on tour and you look at what they need to do to, to succeed. They need to be not just physically extremely mature and ready, um, but also emotionally and psychologically. And, you know, I think a lot of what college does, just the social and intellectual benefits um, are huge. Going out there with Astro Sharma this summer, Right. To the to the pro tour, you know she she felt she had a lot of interest. She was you know taking a course online. She plays guitar. She's reading novels, and you know she was talking about talking to her friends from Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt alums came up to her. So we talk about how college can be the perfect sort of developmental stepping stone to the pros. Um, and again, if it doesn't work out, you have a good degree. Go back to what you said before, though. So you're saying that a player out of high school can right. commit to a school like like Vanderbilt, play one semester, go pro, and then have an assurance of returning to school to get their degree. Yeah. If that 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 yeah. being that being the case, why would anyone not do that? I mean, it just it just seems like such a great insurance policy. And it's one thing if you've got to commit for four years, but if you're talking about a semester, and by the spring of what would be your freshman year, you can go to play pro tournaments with this back pocket admissions right. letter. Why would anyone not play college tennis under those circumstances? You know, a lot are. And to me, it's, um, I just don't know how universities are, are reading to this deal. Um, what's happened is it, it's kind of gotten conflated with the paying player argument. And are we doing enough for student athletes? Right. So, and again, think of a, a, a NBA well, basketball is different because they make so much money in the office that it's written to their contract that their degree can be paid for. But let's say somebody turns pro and doesn't. It, it, universities are now in a, in a gesture of goodwill saying, come on back, we'll, we'll pay for you. Tennis is sort of taking this and opening the door a little wider and said, well, let's do this. Right. Um, and again, I don't know. I mean, that could be back to what you were saying about the pressure to win from, from athletic directors, you know, departments. And, you know, you go to your AD and say, this player is already top 300 in the world. 
uh, we can get her to come and help us. You know, we're going to have to win it with her. That's the argument. I mentioned uh, Vanderbilt football before facetiously, but obviously t- Title IX means that you have the scholarship yeah. offset, which would seem to, if you have a big football team with a lot of scholarships, that would seem to benefit uh, the women's sports programs. Are, are you concerned about this division, though, between revenue and non-revenue sports, especially given uh, some of this recent legislation and some of these um, circuit court decisions? You mean the California? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, the fascinating thing there is just the, the potential unintended consequences. Right. You know, right. Um, what, what's, what's really going to happen? Because something like that comes out as an idea and then a, a law, and then you got then you got to see how it all happens. Um, you know, what I worry about is it becomes even more of a case of haves and have-nots. So, again, think of the mid-major. How can they afford to keep up with an SEC school in any sport, even basketball, like a, a butler? You know, they may be big enough to get past it, the right. Gonzaga. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of a, 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 bit of a divide, you know, haves and have-nots. The funny thing is, if you really, you know, people talk a lot about football, I think I read this recently. Only 28 schools make a profit in football. Oh, oh no! It's, oh, it's amazing. No, I mean these, these are uh, right. TV revenue, no. You're right. You're right. But, it's, yeah. You know, Ohio State makes makes money. They, Michigan, the schools make money. You know, it's like I don't know. It's pretty hard. Our scholarships alone are about almost 600 grand a year just to field a football team. Right. Well, and I mean, they're, no, but they're, they're athletic departments. Yeah. Six million, yeah. exactly. I mean, they're, no, they're athletic departments that are basically the football team is the big money loser, and there's liability insurance and travel costs. That's sort of the great myth of uh, of revenue sports. But I, I just yeah. wonder if, if these distinctions between the sports that bring in money and have the TV contracts a- aimed at them and, and sell tickets, if, if the, those divisions between football, basketball, and the other sports aren't going to be significantly sharpened in the coming years. Yeah, you know, I worry sometimes that whatever money there is will go up to the to the football, basketball, and they'll siphon it off from uh, tennis, golf, swimming, you know, schools, sports that aren't on TV all the time. Um, so yeah, that is a bit of a worry. That is a bit of a worry. Although I can say honestly, from where I'm sitting, I've I've seen pretty darn good support of tennis in the last, certainly the 21st century. It's gotten better almost every every year. Um, let me ask you a random question. Uh, sure. Like like so many Americans, I've, I've been a bit obsessed with varsity blues, uh, with the varsity blues yeah. scandal. You're you're in this world. Were you? Um, I don't know how to. Were, to what extent were you surprised by the the fairly prominent role tennis played uh, in the scandal? Did did you have awareness that some of this was going on? <laughs> Stunned, really? Yeah. Although, again, it's one of those things I had never been approached. Um, Luckily, meaning luckily, meaning it's often put under they they, they put it they camouflage the the offer. Hey, we're going to give a quarter million dollars to your program. So you, so you think, wow, because one of the problems now in coaching is we're often expected to fundraise. That's right. part of the, right. the job now. So I'm doing more of that than I certainly did in the first half of my career, and that's kind of that's where they get you on a slippery slope. Hey, you need to do. You know, I know you're doing a new indoor facility. Here's a hundred grand, and then so now they've got you. You've joined the firm, so to speak, and then they pull you in and go, "Hey, you know, you don't you don't make that much money. 
thanks for getting Johnny in, or can you get his, his brother in? Here's another hundred for you. But I was stunned. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't see it coming, really. That this wasn't something that had been whispered about. That hey, you can make a large six or seven figure donation, and your your kid can either be a bench warmer on the tennis team or not even be on the tennis team, but still get admission. That this wasn't something that had crossed your radar. You're saying, luckily not. In fact, Vanderbilt was mentioned in the uh, affidavit as a school that had, that they couldn't penetrate, so to speak. They couldn't, and part of it is our recruiting and what we're doing with admissions is so you've got to write who is this young person, tell us their tennis background, what impact will they have on the, on the program. And these are relationships with people. I mean, you, you know your admissions liaison really well, and, and you, there, there better be trust or, you know, it won't work. Right. An example is sometimes you know, people are not always their SAT and GPA. Sometimes someone you, you can sense someone can really do the work at a higher level, and you've got to make that case with your admissions liaison. If you, they would know here if I was bringing in somebody who couldn't play. They it would it would really stick out. Um, you know the Georgetown case that was that was an interesting one. It was like a perfect storm. Georgetown didn't necessarily care how good they were. They, and I don't think they paid the coach particularly well. Right. I don't think they had a facility that was very good. So it's like, all right, we have tennis, yeah, I and mean, give him give two admissions, give he or she two or three admissions spots a year, that's fine. That's where you have the perfect storm, you know, right. motive and all that. Um, you, you have the safeguards, you're saying, at, at Vanderbilt. Um, yeah. You, uh, you you mentioned Astra Sharma. I wanted to ask you about her. I, um, I sure. came across her for the first time uh, in Australia at the Australian Open. Um, yeah. I mean, I... Did, did you know she she's right now right on the cusp of the top 100 and, and seems to be making a, a nice living, plays a nice game of doubles, 24 years old. Did you know she was a pro? She came to us in 2013. Um, we had lost a, a really good recruit to Stanford. And I was kind of dejected and went and turned the computer on, and a, an email came over from Perth, Australia, and a uh, coach there. And I just reached out and connected with her, and we began – talking and by my assistant's married to an engineering professor who was going to Melbourne for a conference and she said hey can I go I said sure none of that we'll pay for it because it, it, it coincided with the Australian juniors she saw asked her and she said she's probably the best athlete I've seen on the court she's incredibly respectful and you know good good kid but she's not that good yet she came here and registered I've just never had a, an athlete come in and steadily work at something the way she did. And then once I saw what she did her second year at Vanderbilt, I knew she could she could play pro. Um, and I think she's, John, I actually think she could, she's at about 70% of her potential. There's a lot more that she could could uh, develop that could, could make her have a really good long career. And she, I mean, just to be clear, she was the player that you had accompanied this summer yeah. to, uh, so, so what, I mean, what, what else did you pick up? Um sort of seeing tennis at the, the highest level and perhaps re- mm. reflecting and refracting on, on college tennis. What, what else did you observe? You know, it, 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 it's funny. I mean, you're, you cover the tour and you see it all the time. I, find, I found myself learning an enormous amount and having a lot of respect for how many good players there were. You know, 
TV commentators will say, oh, so-and-so is the only 80 in the world. Or, they're good. <laughs> right, <laughs> and right. Kind of, you know, so I'm, I'm coaching Astrid, so my job is to say, how do I help her? How, what does she need to do to get better? So you're thinking about that all the time, which is, for a tennis coach, quite a healthy thing to do. Um, you know, I, I would try to meet coaches and just pick their brains. Uh, what do you think here? You know, I asked um, about who coaches Kevin Anderson, Brad Stein. Right, Brad Stein, sure. You know, I said, Brad, I, I, I knew him and we're friendly. And I said, all right, you're Kevin Anderson. You're playing Rafael Nadal in the final of the Open. Why wouldn't you serve in Mali? And we talked a lot about, you know, Nadal's back, you know, almost at, at, I mean, he's so far back from the return, and if you let him get into that rally, you're going to lose. <laughs> Did a lot of conversing like that. Um, watching the top players and their their passion for it, it it's just it's just incredible to see, um, you know how how they go about their business. You know, watching the doll practices serve and hit hit like the same spot. Nine out of ten times with a with a slice of the tea, you know that kind of stuff. Right. Um, really, you know, kind of pinch yourself. Uh, incredible experience. No, it's a great. And also, I mean, I I imagine it's it's a great story too that this was a a twenty four year old you discovered in Western Australia, and this is not uh, a, a ringer that was a nice recruit that you had for six months and then set off to the wild. It sounds right. like you really developed right. this player. Right, and I've honestly, you know. It's, a cliche, but the relationships you form in coaching, college tennis coaches are not paid a fortune, but it's been a, a it's been a great living, and I've, I've loved it. But really, it's seeing people grow up, and and then when you see somebody develop into a pro and play slams, and you think of the odds against that. Right. But right. before Astor named Julie Giddy, who got up to about eighty five and and yeah, round right, of sixteen right. at the Open and doubles. Right. Uh, and again, a debatable grad and just kind of went out there. And I think she's like the, the Crash Davis of uh, the tour. She's won more of those USTA Pro Circuit titles than anyone in the history, singles and doubles. Yeah, Crash Davis didn't have a Vanderbilt degree to fall back on. <laughs> um, Good point. Do you, uh, do you still have time to write? I, 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 we'll put this on our show page, but I remember the uh, you, you reviewed the the book of our friend Rowan, uh, yeah. Rowan Phillips. Um, did you, um, do you still have time to write? You know, I... I'm sort of a frustrated writer. I went to uh, University of Florida for one year in fiction writing oh, wow. and I didn't know that. published a short story and kind of wanted to go that path. And, um, honestly, if I lack the discipline. By the way, I'm a huge fan of your work and your book um, on the Nadal Center. Oh, uh, giving that away as a gift a lot. I think I mentioned it that one too, actually. Um, I appreciate that. But yeah, I, I write some. I, I do stuff at the Times. Um, I did a really fun thing with a guy named Joe Ward on the the, the grip, the continental grip to the western. Oh right, I remember uh, that. Right, right, right. With with the uh, with with the bevels on the racket. Yeah, we'll yeah. we'll link that as well. That yeah. was a great piece. That's right. Yeah, really cool, fun thing. I, I and I've done a couple things on with Joe on uh, what we did on the doll forehand and the other one. The really cool is just instructional. I would love to be more of a full time writer, but I'm really just kind of a dabbler. Sadly, <laughs> this was uh, this was great. I'm, I'm glad we did this. You were uh, you yeah. came highly recommended, and you uh, you exceeded expectations. You're like you're like the Astra Sharma of podcast guests. You uh, <laughs> you, you exceeded expect. No, no, this was great. I really appreciate this. Great talking. Well, thank you, John. This was great. Great. Thanks, John. All right, thanks, Jeff. Take care.
All right. Thanks to Jeff. Thanks to Coach McDonald for spending some time. Enjoyed that conversation. Astra Sharma is a player uh, worthy of your uh, of your follow and your fandom. Uh, Vanderbilt grad who did not expect, I suspect, to be uh, a top 100 player in her mid-20s, but uh, here she is. Um, all right. Good conversation there. Uh, Jamie, you uh, you produced that one. Do you have strong thoughts, I'm wondering, as a, as a former college tennis athlete, about recruiting and some of these issues of finding overseas ringers versus lesser players who may happen to be from a little closer by, a little closer to the tax base uh, in the case of state-funded institutions. Any thoughts on that? College soccer, not college tennis. College? Did I say college? You said college, college tennis. You were a college athlete. Oh, um, yeah. On your college soccer team, yeah. how many how many American players did you have versus overseas uh, we players? We were majority American, but um, that was a big thing. I know when I was getting recruited by schools and or go visit schools and kind of look at the rosters, as you were saying, that you did for Vanderbilt, um, you could see which ske- which schools skewed more international. I know, for example, uh, Quinnipiac uh, was one of the schools that I was looking to go to and I was being recruited by, and they had a um, strong pipeline to Ireland and all of um, you know Irish soccer players, and so a lot of players on that team were international. I assume now it's probably – a lot more given uh, the NWSL and um, a lot of the women's soccer players now playing overseas on club teams there. So I think it's probably even greater uh, given that. But, I mean, I think it's great. I think that it's important, um, especially like for in, in soccer, it was just um, the international internationally the game is just played so much That's more and everything else. Right. So I just thought that those girls brought – a different perspective of the game. Um, How old were they? Uh, similar age. They were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, one I remember specifically a little bit older um, and seemed like on some other teams that some of the girls were just older and stronger <laughs> and bigger and everything. Uh, but I think it's great. I mean, um, I think it's good to have a, a balance, though. The majority rules of an international team feels uh, a little strange. You know, if I'm a in this case, a young tennis player growing up in the Nashville area and, you know, my dream is to go play at Vandy and I look at the team and there's not that many girls, you know, from the area on there. That may be, um, you know, something that deters me. So I think it's good to have a balance. Um, I mean, I ask you about the age because it does seem like the NCAA has closed this loophole. I mean, it used to be players overseas could try and play professionally for three, four, five years. I mean, there were players at, at, well, name check Baylor, um, there were players at Baylor, 22, 23 years old, going up against 18-year-olds. And not only were they five years older, but they had had the experience of basically trying to launch a pro tennis career. When that didn't happen, well, I'll just go to college in the U.S. Right. Um, I, I found it to be a lot more rampant on the men's side. Um, at, at my school, particularly, men's soccer had a ton of international players, and they were all so much older. Some of these programs, I think, uh, abuse the system. And I think there, there's a dishonesty. I, I'm not sure it is consistent with the ethics of, of college sports to just go overseas and have a team full of ringers. Uh, at the same time, as you say, having overseas players on, on any group, uh, in a dorm room, in an orchestra, certainly on, on a sports team, that enhances the experience. I mean, I think you know, quotas inherently are problematic. And having some players that don't come from Tennessee is probably a great thing and part of the experience. But some of these college teams where literally there is not one American player in the singles lineup, I think uh, is a little problematic. The other thing, too, is that when college athletic departments 
have to look at budgets and they have to think about what players to keep. And, and Title IX is everything sort of a work in progress in a fluid situation in terms of funding. If I'm an athletic director and my tennis team has zero Americans, that makes it, I think, a much easier team to uh, to cut. But anyway, it's a sort of an ongoing conversation. And I think in some ways this reflects uh, bigger questions about globalization and nativism and this is sort of the world writ small. But uh, anyway, what? Uh, let me ask you this, changing topics. It is late October and we are, what are we, about six weeks removed from our previous major. We're about, you know, two and a half months from the next one. What's your level of interest in tennis right now? I mean, does, does a team, as, as a sport, uh, continue to captivate you in the fall? I, I will be honest. I say I think uh, at this time of year, I start to drift off a bit. Um, I don't know if that's the same as most, but I think the WTA and ATP finals sometimes feel a little, uh, I don't know. Anticlimactic? Yeah, or manufactured is not the word, but they just don't seem like they are really the be-all, end-all of the season, um, especially given, I mean, we've seen – I know Masaka pull out for injury, but you know, there's just uh, you know, Serena isn't going. There's just a lot of names missing, and uh, I don't know. It never really felt like a fifth major to me in my mind. And of course, um, there's a ton of other sports occupying the calendar. I mean, we just had uh, NBA, NHL, MLB, tough, NFL all in right one now. day. Yep. Um, so yep. when you've got you know the the World Series and all these other things happening, uh, it gets tough. It gets tough. You mentioned Naomi Osaka, which I think um, as we speak, I mean, literally, this is in, in real time, Kiki Burton's uh, has beaten Ash Barty. Uh, but Kiki Burton's filled in for Osaka, who had a shoulder injury, and that, I hope, is precautionary, but that's not a good injury. That, no, not um, good. that concerns me. I mean, we see Andrescu had, had a similar injury, but uh, not good. I mean, the one thing about... Uh, Burton's though, you know, she can only it's she's in a rough spot. I mean, no matter what she does, even if she wins, she can only truly make the semifinals. I was reading the the rules early this morning, but I mean, basically, even if she wins, it goes down to matches played and of course since she's Yeah, exactly. No, it's very tricky, here, right. Um, it's a nice payday, but she will um she's she is playing a bit with one arm tied behind her back. And yeah. you know, someone asked me this question last week. I don't know if you were following this in um in Basel at the at the indoor event there, but Stan Wawrinka won his match, beat Francis, and then was injured and had to pull out against against Federer in a, a match that obviously would have been uh, would have been a great match, especially in Switzerland. But somebody raised the question: Why wouldn't there be a provision whereby the losing player in the previous round could fill in, even if he lost the match? Isn't that preferable to at least having a, a match in the next round? Um, I'm all for it, but the question, like this Burton situation, is how do you reward a player with, with points and with prize money when they lost their previous match? Also, I think it gets a little tricky just in terms of scheduling. I mean, if you lose a match and you hightail it out of there that night. Exactly. Or on the flip side, you know, uh, Valrinka, if he shows up to the match and he's really not feeling good, I mean, we've had people who um, pull out not because of shoulders but because of stomach aches, you know, and, and stomach flu or something like that that could have happened overnight hours before the match. So I think it gets tricky when you ask a loser of the previous round to, hey, stick around until that match that you were supposed to play in starts because we're not really sure if the opponent is going exactly. to pull out or stay in. So it's hard. Um, I think for for fans, of course, they just want to see a match. Uh, but I think on the scheduling logistics side, 
it's tough. I mean, this, this is one of the liabilities, obviously, of individual sports, that LeBron James can get hurt, but the Lakers are still going to play that night. Stan Wawrinka isn't up to it, and I don't think you fault the player. I think we work on the assumption of player, players want to compete, and it must be a really debilitating injury for Stan to have pulled out against Federer. Um, but if an individual sport athlete isn't up to it, you you have a cancellation on the schedule. Um, all right, let's uh, let's give it some room to the football folks. We will uh, come back next week with another podcast. We'll have some results, obviously, from from Chenzen and the women's event there. A lot of prize money in the balance, which uh, which is great to see. One thing I will point out to you, Jamie, in keeping with your uh, your your theme of how tennis may have tailed off a little bit, it does seem as though recently the players who have had strong falls and have really taken advantage of these points on the line, and it's Jack Sock, and it's Grigor Dimitrov, and then Sabalenka had a very nice fall last year. She actually had a strong fall this year as well. Um, I'm trying to think, did David Goffin last year? Zverev? Um, that has not always been such a great predictor for uh, success to start the next season. Because so, the next season is right here. Well, exactly. We it's, can see uh, it. <laughs> the the offseason, I think, falls on a Tuesday this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, abso- you're absolutely right. I, there isn't I, much of downtime. But um, the players who finish year X on a hot streak don't necessarily start year X plus one uh, with the same temperature. I think it's really hard to go all the way through, especially when a lot of times for, for these players who are probably trying to claw their way back from either – um, you know, a, a poor spring or a poor summer. You know, they're really just trying to end the season on a high note. But then when they finally take a breath, you know, like as you said, on that Tuesday in December, it's a little exhausting. And I think they probably see the rest of the, um, you know, the players either relaxing, taking vacations, doing things that um, also are beneficial to, to their career. But come January, I mean, hey, we, we they come end of December – Everyone's back on the court again, so it's it's tough. No, you got to pace yourself in this sport, and that's one reason why I think when a player like Serena Williams has said, as she has for the last few years, I'm shutting it down after the Open, um, at her age, but also just sort of given the rhythms of this sport and what it demands of you, not just in terms of stamina on the court, but stamina in terms of pacing your season, I, I don't think you can begrudge her those scheduling decisions. All right, that, uh, that does it for this week. Thanks, Jamie, as always. Pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Uh, We will give up the room to the football folks. We'll be back next week. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again for the suggestion. Thanks to our guest, Jeff McDonald. Subscribe, leave a review, go to uh, wherever you get fine podcasts, and uh, we'll do it again next week. Have a good week, everyone. (laughs) 